we've got a fantastic story to talk about today. It's called The Coffin Corner Boys. Definitely a unique name, which the crews of World War II B-17s had come up with to describe the most exposed position in the American bomber formations that were flying from England over France to deliver their payloads on strategic German positions. But first they had to survive German anti-aircraft and attacks from German fighter planes. Over 22,000 American planes were shot down in combat in World War II. It was a dangerous and deadly business. On March 16, 1944, a young pilot, Lieutenant George Starks, and the nine-man crew of his flying fortress were occupying the coffin corner of a flying formation when they were shot down, forcing he and his crewmen to bail out over German-occupied French countryside. Author Carol Engel Avriot spent three years interviewing surviving pilot George Starks and surviving crew members, speaking with their families, and gaining access to diaries and accounts, including the return trips Stark had made to meet the French people who had risked their lives to save him and his crew. And she shares it all in her well-researched saga, The Coffin Corner Boys, by Reginary History Publishing. 1001 Heroes is very fortunate to have her with us today to give us some insight to the risks made by Allied pilots and ordinary French citizens to win the war and secure freedom from the Nazi stranglehold in Europe. We have a special guest today at 1001 Heroes podcast, and that's author Carol Avriot, author of The Coffin Corner Boys, a World War II story that I found was an absolute page-turner, a tremendous story of adventure, survival, loyalty, and brotherhood. Carol, welcome to 1001 Heroes. How are you doing? I'm doing great, and it's a pleasure to be with you today, John. (laughs) I'd like you to give our listeners a little bit about your background and then uh, explain to them what inspired you to write this story. Okay. Well, my father was career Navy, and I had an uncle who was the primary line chief for General Claire Lee Chenault of the Flying Tigers in China. And I had uh, a stepdad that joined the war, Army Air Corps, the day after he graduated from law school, was in North Africa, went up the boot of Italy with General Mark Clark, um, various and sundry Marine Corps cousins and Air Force Academy grads and so on and so forth. So it's it's a little in the DNA, the military interest. Runs in the family also, for you. Yep. Yes, I also majored in history, and I specialized in military history. So uh-huh. been a lifelong passion to study about the military. It was a, a fantastic story. How did you discover uh, Captain Starks, who was uh, who was your uh, writing affiliate, interview affiliate uh, for this story? And by the way, condolences for his loss. How yes. did you first find him and the story? Well, that's a great story in and of itself. My husband came home one day from a fishing trip with his 35-plus-year fishing buddy, who had just recently been to a professional meeting and had heard George Stark speak to this group of men, and he shared some of his story. And my husband knew that I was looking for my next military history book project. He said, man, you need to you need to call this guy and talk to him. And so I did set up a time for breakfast. And I'm telling you, John, within five minutes, I knew this was the next story I wanted to be involved in and and to have the privilege of of recording. It is just a 
it's a superb story, isn't it? it it's a fantastic story. Can you can you educate our listeners um, uh, as to the B-17 and, and what type of plane that was, what kind of crew it handled, and what its purpose was in World War II? Okay. The B-17, of course, as you know and a lot of your listeners know, was a bomber. Um, at the beginning of the war, the bombers did not have fighter escort. Now, a little bit later on in the war, the fighters were able to fly greater distances and were able to escort the bombers better. But at the beginning of the war, our B-17s did not have fighter escort. And they would fly in what's called a bomber box formation. And hundreds of planes flying together in this bomber box formation. And essentially what that was were smaller groups flying along in groups of about six or seven planes. And low squadron, low group, outside corner was the number six position. And because it was on the outside corner, it was very exposed. And these German fighter planes would come in. In this case, it was an FW-190 fly over the formation and then dive down and come up and hit that number six for, um, spot so often. So our crews began to call that spot, because it was so vulnerable, because so many of our planes got hit there, they began to call it the Coffin Corner. And in fact, that's where George and the other nine men on his crew, so B-17 flew with a crew of ten, so that was the position that they had drawn on this particular mission. And sure enough, the FW-190 came screeching in, and they were very fast, very maneuverable, came up and shot his left engine. Of course, immediately the fire just began to spread up the wing, and, and um, he knew he had to pull out of the formation, and they knew they had to parachute out. And that in and of itself, John, is a neat thing because, interesting thing, I should say, exciting, terrifying thing. These crews on the B-17s had never jumped out of an airplane. Now, what they knew about parachuting, they had learned through movies and just classroom work. But none of them had ever jumped out of a, an actual moving airplane before until that day. That's Can you imagine? Amazing. That's amazing. They were desperate for pilots and navigators and crews, too, uh, weren't they, in, in the United States with the coming of the war? And they were taking guys with just a couple handfuls of flying experience and putting them up there. Is that correct? Well, they would have to, to take a test. And depending on how you scored on the test, determined whether or not you could qualify and then go on to either pilot training or navigator school or whatever it was that you were able to, to qualify for. And George scored high enough on the test that he was tapped to go into pilot training. And so that took um, a few few months. He uh, learned to fly in an open cockpit as steerman. You've probably seen pictures of those. They kind of, uh, you know, with his leather uh, leather jacket and his leather helmet and goggles. It's, it's, we've got a picture of him in the book, in fact, in, in his steerman. And then he was tapped to go into B-17s, and they trained in Piote, Texas, and that was where he met the rest of the guys in his crew. Uh, tell us a little bit about George, uh, where he went to school, his girlfriend, and, and what life was like for him before he went in the service. Okay, he was raised in a little town in northern Florida called Live Oak. It's 
So he's a Florida boy, uh, born and raised. And he was 16, when he was 16 years old, he was always very, very personable, very charming. He was the uh, head of the uh, band. He was head of the uh, drama club. And when he was 16 years old, there was a little young girl. She was only 12 at the time. But she, in that, in that day and time, if you did real well in school, they promoted you up. You could skip grades. And she became one of the um, majorettes in the band that he was leading. And he told me the cutest story. He said I, he kind of used to goose her with his trombone when he, when they were marching together. But they be, they were really high school sweethearts. And so when he came back from the war, uh, he took a little picture of her with him to war. And when he came back, he went and he met her, uh, got with her family, asked for her hand in marriage. And they were married for 66 years. <laughs> that wonderful story, isn't and it? And her name was Betty Jo, is that correct? Betty Jo. And she went by Jo. And um, she was uh, uh, evidently a, just a, a wonderful woman. I, she passed away before I, I was able to meet her. Later on in life, he went back to Europe and took Jo several times, as a matter of fact, and wound up taking his sons as well. And he went from village to village until he found every single French man, woman, and child that had helped him and his crew in their uh, evading and escaping uh, the Germans. That's an amazing part of your story, and I want to get to that in just a little while. Uh, okay. Is, is how cooperative the French people were, and, and again, we'll get into it, but at the risk of being shot by Germans, because they were facilitating and harboring yes. uh, downed pilots. Uh, yes. They knew their life was on the line. It's just amazing, this story of what happened to this uh, to George and his crew of nine men. But yes. Let's take it. He's age 19. He's got his wings, and he's, sent to, and he's sent to England for training. What happens from that point on? Okay. Well, the training, uh, most of the training was actually done in the United in the US. States. Okay. Yes, in the U.S., and he did pin on his wings when he was 19 years old. And so they then ferried one of the B-17s over to England, which is where their base was, Poddington. Uh, England at that time had bases all over, really, for our airmen and, and, um, and to fly out of. And George and his crew were stationed at a place uh, called Poddington. And it was there that they would then practice maneuvers with the B-17, practice bombing runs. And actually, this was the very first mission that all 10 of them had flown together. And um, so it was really, uh, they were such a young crew. Four of them had just turned 20, George and three others, just barely 20 years old. The, the average age was 22. And the oldest was 27. They called him Pappy. They, you know, my husband and I talk about this, and this is, this is no, no slight at all to our young people. We've got some amazing young people in our country. But can you imagine doing that, 19, 20 years old, being in charge of, at that time, the most expensive airplane that we produced? Now, later, we, we got larger bombers, but... At that time, it cost about $265,000, one B-70. Of course, now it'd be, you know, a couple of three million, several million. But can you imagine having that responsibility, having those bombs, having that mission, that bombing mission to do, being shot down, 
you're in enemy territory. You know, if you come across the wrong person, you might be killed. Um, don't know who to trust. Uh, don't know where you are. I mean, it, it, it's really, it really speaks to the courage. We, we don't call these people the greatest generation for nothing. You know, they, there is a reason why they're called that. <laughs> yeah, their their bomb payload was uh, was it uh, uh, five thousand pounds or more? Yes, yes, yeah. yes, about that, about that. Yes, unbelievable. And th- and those planes were very well equipped with machine guns. So as as your yes. story, your story was great in detail because it explained uh, how these boxes had to had to be these flying boxes shapes yes. had to be yes. arranged in such a way that. Their machine guns, which were mounted at nearly every corner of the plane, could provide a protective field of cover. So yes. the, the Germans had to be pretty tricky to be able to come in and uh, from underneath, like you say, from the blind side. And yes. I think they shot the wings off. Is that correct? Typically, they would aim for an uh, you maybe for an engine, but yes, a wing. And in this case, it did hit the number one engine, and then of course it just the the flames just spread so rapidly from that. And um, years later, George met the captain who was the lead airplane in his formation that day. And he had already turned to his co-pilot and he had said, if that guy does not pull out a formation by the count of 10, I'm going to shoot his tail, the tail of the airplane off. The reason being that if you stayed in the formation, you've got all they said they hadn't dropped their bombs yet. They had all that bomb load. And had that fire gotten, you know, had it exploded, had the bombs exploded, then it would have taken out several more B-17s. And um, so, but George, of course, knew he had to pull out a formation. They're going at about 25,000 feet up, having to then jump out of that temperature below zero, uh, no oxygen, you know, quite a, it must have just been a terrifying experience, really. So what happened from the moment their plane was hit and caught on fire? What happened from that point? Well, of course, there was a scramble to, they always wore harnesses, but they didn't fly with the parachutes actually attached to the harness. So the first thing you had to do was you had to uh, scramble around. You had to get your parachute out from under your, usually from under your seat. Uh, You had to make sure that uh, everybody was getting there strapped on. You're scurrying around. Um, there were actually several hatches in the B-17, depending on where you were in the plane, is, is which hatch you went out of. And, of course, it's, you know, the, the plane is still continuing to go, you know, 22,000 miles uh, ab- high, uh, probably doing about 250 uh, miles an hour at this point. And um, I, I just, it, it's, re- it's really hard to imagine how, how you must have felt, how how terrified you know you must have been. So harrowing experience, really. And, of course, the pilot may, would always wait. He would be the last one out. He, he would wait to make sure that his crew got out. And um, so George got out, of course, jumped out the very last. All the other men had already jumped out at that point. And what was his, what was his description of the jump? How did that go for him? Well, it was, um, you know, just a, a mind-boggling experience, really, for all of them. Uh, terrifying, you know, they, it, you'd never done this before. You'd only seen movies about it. Um, a lot of them pull the ripcord 
too high, you know, just nervous energy, you know, and so you just think you need to go on and pull it, and some weighted some, and um, it, there was always the danger, see, of, a, of the German fighter pilots coming back and shooting the guys as they came down, or they would fly very close to the parachute and suck the wind out of the chute, and the chute would collapse, so it you know, there was danger just, just in the jump itself. And, of course, George, when he landed, he landed so hard, he fractured his foot, and he t- had taken shrapnel in his thigh while the, the plane was, was under fire from the fighter pilot. And um, one of the guys landed so hard, he it knocked himself, he, he, he was knocked out, um, landed on his back, he was knocked out for a while, so... Uh, the, the jump itself carried carried danger uh, with it, you know. So here these guys have jumped. There's a crew of 10. They managed to make it into the French countryside. Uh, some are able to pair up, right, and some guys are alone. Uh, can you kind of tell us from that point on? Uh, well, well, because the plane is still moving so rapidly, you know, you know when they jump out of it, then you can just think if they're going one at a time, then they are spread out over a fair amount uh, of French countryside. And so if you went out the hatch, say the waist gunners went out the same hatch, and they, when they landed, they were not that far from one another, maybe 100 yards, and they were able to pair up. Um, three of the others were able to fairly quickly pair up together. They met some people that had seen them come down, and so they kind of paired up. But a couple of them were alone, and George was one of them because he was the last man out. He landed alone in, um, in the a field, really. And he saw through the bushes and trees, the Germans were already beginning to look. They'd seen the plane come down. So they already were in their, uh, you know, their jeeps and and looking for these downed airmen. So from from that point on, it was a strictly cat and mouse uh, game. Three of the men were captured rather quickly, and the interesting thing about those three, one of them was Jewish, and so he and that was Irv Baum, right? Irv Baum, and and that became a very uh, a very tricky, unfortunate thing uh, when he was captured. So each one wound up having an incredible story. And what made this book so much fun to work on is that the families, because George had done such a good job in later years keeping up with everybody, the families had diaries and journals for me to pull from and letters and... Uh, it was just really spectacular. When I started to work on the book, Irv Baum was still alive. And I was able to talk with him in person, which was just fabulous. So he and George were the two of the crew who re- remained alive when I began working on this project, which was, uh, I spent about three years on it. So I can believe that. The, the, um, what's really fascinating about your book, and you just said it, it's, it was your access to the personal accounts of each one of these men. So literally, we're with each one of them in each chapter, mile by mile. The danger of them trying to get through German-occupied France 
to freedom or in some cases ending up in prison camps and just trying to survive. They didn't know what door to knock on, what barn to sleep in, what field to walk through, what forest to sleep in, and in any given moment. And how some of these guys survived it, there was a lot of luck, but there was definitely a lot of help from the French people. I'd like you to, if you could, recount some of the more dramatic instances in their trek in some of these guys, including obviously George. Uh, okay. What were some of the close calls that they experienced? Close calls. Okay. I'll start. I'll start with George. the The very first night um, that he was down, or very first day, there was a French farmer that came through the woods and sort of gave a signal whistle. And George just, you know, he was scared. He was tired. He was hungry by this time. He 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 thought, well, I'm just going to take a chance. So he came out of the bushes, came out of the woods. And the farmer kind of motioned to him. He didn't speak any English. And, of course, George didn't speak any French. But he kind of motioned to him to be quiet and duck back down and kind of let him know that he was he would come back later. He came back later that night, brought him some wine, some, some cheese, a little bit of bread, and took him into the village when it was dark. And there was a lady that housed him that first night. And she, her husband was a POW. Uh, with the Germans already. He was a Polish. He was uh, Polish. And she was alone living with her little girl, eight or nine years old. I mean, she would have been shot if they had discovered she had even kept George that one night. And what makes some of these stories so interesting is that, yes, the French resistance helped them. Yes, the underground, some of them were able to, fortunate enough to hook up with the underground. But mostly it was just these average French men and women who wanted so badly to do their part uh, in expelling the Germans from their country. And so there was that. Uh, One time, uh, George was walking through a village, and he didn't realize that there were so many Germans in the village, and he's coming up to this door, and this German officer motions for him to come over. And he, he was he was stuck. He, he knew he couldn't. If he turned and ran, he, he they'd shoot him. So he goes over. It turns out they're pulling a coffin out of this house. And they asked George to help them, these all these German soldiers, to help, help them lift this heavy coffin onto a cart. And, of course, George, it, you know, he just kind of, you know, playing dumb like, he, you know, he doesn't understand German. Fortunately, they couldn't speak French either. And so there he is helping these German soldiers lift a coffin. And I, just one close, he stole a bicycle one time and wound up going through several uh, roadblocks. And he looked very, very young. This was the thing that saved him. He, he, was, he's, he always had a very boyish grin, even as he was an older man. But he was very youthful looking. He looked maybe 15. And the French, uh, for all the guys that they took into their houses, also gave them a replacement of clothing, correct? Exactly. They would replace their clothing. A um, couple of couple of guys uh, wound up. The, the, the waist gunners were together. They actually hooked up with the underground, and they were taken. And, and the way that was done, it was like passing a baton, you know, in a long-distance run. They would... One guide, one French underground guide would have them for a while and then they would be passed off to the next person that would then take them, you know, onto the train or or the next part of the journey. So, but it was always, it was always so dangerous because you had Germans all around um, and, and you really never knew exactly who, you know, who you could trust. 
um, it just, um, it, it, it's really incredible. The now, your happen. guy, Captain Starks, he's the one who headed for Switzerland, is that correct? Yes. There were four, four of the crew that wound up walking through northeastern and eastern France and into Switzerland. And that's a 500-mile trek from where they started, uh, right? About 300 miles. About right. 300 miles from where they were. But, you know, when, when you've got Germans after you, who's counting, right? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yeah. it, it'd probably seem more like 3,000. Um, and, of course, the three of them were able to, to hook up together. George was always alone. And the other three, he wound up uh, being put in the very same place in Switzerland, and uh, that was really quite a reunion when he was able to hook up with those three of his, his crewmen. But then four of them were captured by the Germans, three officers and one of the enlisted men. And at that time, the Germans separated in their camps. They, they wouldn't put officers and enlisted together. They would have a, a Stalag Luft that would be for enlisted men, and then they would have a Stalag Luft that would be for the officers. It's just the way the Luftwaffe organized things. And the one enlisted man, Dick Morse, that wound up going to Stalag Luft III up on the Baltic Sea, that was one of the most difficult, most severe conditions for, for the German POW camps of any of them. And, and we've got his first-hand account of what later became known as the Black Death March, a very underreported death march that the Germans took those POWs on, lasted about um, almost 90 days. Only one out of every seven and eight POWs survived that. It was a little bit parallel to the Bataan Death March in the Philippines, and uh, very underreported, and we have that in the book, this incredible first-hand account of that uh, that experience. Then two of the guys hooked up with the underground and went west. The underground took them to Paris and then hooked up with guides, and they walked through the Pyrenees into Spain. And that was hit and miss and touch and go all the way, too, because the Germans were right on their tails as they were beginning to cross over into the Pyrenees. Yeah, that was a, that was a very close call. Who was it that Captain Starks was referring to when he called him the bravest man I've ever known? For the first couple of weeks, George was being passed from one villager to the next. Just some wonderful people, but no one official yet. No, no one actually with the resistance, actually with the underground. And he knew that in order to get past those roadblocks that were set up on the border between France and Switzerland, he would have to have someone from the resistance, you know, an actual someone that knew the ropes, so to speak, that could take them. The villagers would not have that kind of expertise or contacts. And so finally, uh, he, he just, he, he really had reached the end of his rope. And he, he just prayed, you know, and he said, you know, I've, I've, I've got to have somebody. And within a day or two, through a series of events, he met a man named Maurice Bavarel. And Maurice was, not only was he with the resistance, but he was a spy for British intelligence and was able to go back and forth all just all the time on skis through the Alps. So when he, when he hooked up with Maurice, George felt like, well, at last I'm going to be able 
to get across that border into Switzerland. But there was only one problem. Usually Maurice took the people through the Alps on snow skis. So when he was quizzing George, George said, well, yeah, I can ski, I can water ski. You know, he was a Florida boy. He'd never even seen snow. So they had to figure out another way. And, of course, that's part of the story. Maurice hooked up with a doctor, uh, a physician, that was also actually working with the resistance. And they were able to hide him. I'm not going to give away what they hid him in because that's just the funniest <laughs> <All little right. laughs> tidbit. But, um, but they, they hid him and, and went through about five roadblocks. And uh, it's unbelievable that he was actually able to, to make, it, make it into Switzerland. But he did with Maurice's help. George said Maurice was one of these guys who was just fearless. He, he had already been captured twice by the Germans and had escaped. So he, he, had a red, he had a red X on his back the whole time, but he didn't care. He just, he wanted to do whatever he could to thwart that occupation and to help free his, his countrymen. And uh, it's, it, it really is remarkable, the things that he did. It, it's in so many incredible stories you have. What was the condition of the French civilians? They seemed to be very poor, down to pretty much just wine and bread. Uh, and, and also, what were they risking? Yes. Um, sometimes George and some of the others would notice that once they were in the little cottage and it would be very poor and, and, and maybe the livestock a lot of times just wandered in and out of the house, you know. The na- when the neighbors found out that someone in their village was hiding an airman, one of the allies, sometimes they would even pitch in. They, you know, maybe one person could afford to bring a little bread. Um, one time one brought a rabbit for some stew. That was a, a sacrifice. One time some brought a little sugar, and, um, and that was a sacrifice. So they would sort of pitch in, and they did that with the clothes that they came up with for these guys. They put a, um, a French beret on, on George because his, his haircut, of course, look was a GI short, you know, and, and that would have been a, a giveaway. And they would get a, a, like a little extra knapsack if they had it and put some things in them in the knapsack for them when they went on their way. So just anything that they could do, these Frenchmen uh, and women and, and children. I mean, uh, when they are getting ready to cross the border, there's a 12-year-old that does a, uh, an incredibly brave thing to help George and Maurice get across that border. So uh, it wasn't just the French resistance and the underground. It was everyone. And by this time, of course, in the war, everyone in the villages were living on very, very meager, um, a very meager uh, subsistence. What kept motivating each one of these crew members to keep on going despite all the fear and depression that they were facing? Yes. George, at one time, we have a story in there that he says, you know, he he just had reached a point where he was so tired. Uh, He was still, he was in some mountainous area that still had snow, very cold. He was wet, you know, up to his waist, walking through drifts, snow drifts. And um, he just told himself, he said, you know, he said, almost like uh, someone who is a recovering, uh, perhaps a recovering alcoholic, you know, you just, you go one more day. And that was what he told himself, you know, I'm just going to go 
one more day, force myself to go one more day. And, um, and, and that's what many of them, you know, um, that was how they did that. They, they just, that drive, you know, to escape, uh, to get back with their units, to get back, uh, to the allied lines. And of course they were shot down in March. D-Day was not until June of that same year. So it took a while for the allies, you know, to work their way up into France. They, they were dodging Germans the whole time. At this particular crew. Your book does a fantastic job of outlining the the cost of the war in materials and men, planes. Um, some statistics I know you offer up in less than four years, from December of 1941 to August of 1945, the U.S. Army Air Force lost 14,903 pilots, air crew, and assorted personnel and 13,873 airplanes inside the continental United States. This was, this was how dangerous it was just to, to train and to fly uh, these huge planes. That's, that's right, John. Um, the, the thing about the B-17s is they, they carried, it really a 10 is, is quite a large crew. You know, so if that plane is shot down... If you have several of those in one day, you know, those numbers then begin to add up pretty quickly. Uh, you know, 10, 10 in, in the crew if the entire plane crashes. And so, and sometimes only a few of the crew uh, would make it out. Or only a few of the crew would uh, parachute out and make it safely to the ground. Sometimes, as I said before, you know, they were shot as they were coming down or they'd uh, land in a tree and be and be shot trying to get out of the tree or you know there were just a number of things so the the loss of life in these b-17 bombing missions uh, is really is really staggering when you think about it yeah Uh, and one part of your book it says i believe it was impossible for a bomber crew a crew man to survive 25 missions almost impossible and as the war went on and uh like i said earlier when they did get fighter escort that could actually escort them all the way to their targets and then all the way back the that began to be uh, a little less of in fact of a factor now not much but but certainly the the fighter escort made a difference but at the beginning uh, to go 25 missions was usually very, very difficult uh, without without being shot. And as the war went on, then they did raise it from 25 to 30. And I think even at the end of the war, I think it had been raised to 35 missions before you could go home. So um, there were a lot of guys that flew a lot of missions. Mm. What were some of the atrocities that Irv Baum and Ted Batter survived in the German POW camps? We, we have a story, well, several stories, um, things that happened to Irv. One of the things, this is such, it's a little detail, but I think it gives you a sense of how really capable and uh, good, really, these German interrogators were. They brought Irv in after he had been captured and uh, brought him in to one of the interrogators 
And Irv said that this German officer could speak absolutely perfect English. Perfect. And he begins just, you know, casually talking to Irv. And he said, I see you're from, uh, you know, Monticello, New York. Uh, Irv just couldn't believe it. He said, well, yes. And then he said, and I forget the name, we have it in the book, he said, uh, well, did you know the principal of the high school, Mr. So-and-so? And that had been Irv's high school principal. And, and he, said, he said there was something about having this man know such incredible detail about his home and his high school. And, and who had been the principal? And he said it, he said he had ne- it un- in, uh, unnerved him in ways that he just could not imagine. But that's how good those interrogators were. Um, and that's often how they would get a, um, a soldier, you know, he's scared, he's, he's in a strange place. That's often how they were able to get him to reveal, you know, information. Uh, because they, you know, you'd think, oh my gosh, you know, how, how does, how does he know those things about me? How does he know those things about my family? Some, sometimes they would even know things about, you know, your family back home. Very unnerving. And so when Irv was actually checked into the POW camp again, I will, we'll let this be a little bit of a surprise for if anyone wants to read about it, but we hope, we hope all our listeners want to read about it. This is a fantastic book. But there, there is an incident with a young German soldier when Irv is being checked in. It, it just floored Irv. I'm not going to say what, it, what happened, but it, it was just unbelievable that this particular incident happened as he was being checked in to the POW camp. And um, I will say this now. This is another interesting thing, and we have, again, some firsthand account on this. Irv and Ted couldn't believe there was a lot of excitement and sort of a, a tension in the air when they got into that camp. And the other POWs, the, even Americans, wouldn't speak to them right at first. It took about two weeks. And finally, when they, they would share with Irv and Ted, they found out that the day before they had been checked into that POW was the day of the great escape when the men went out the movie of course was made uh, about the great escape that was the very stalag that the men escaped from uh, of course they did not know yet what what was the outcome of that the sadly you know 50 of those men were were executed uh, before they were ever returned to stalag left for but but what a what an incredible thing when you were talking when I talked with Irv to know that he, you know there he was he had gotten into that Stalag Luft the very day after this incredible Great Escape event. It's living history. I think that's one reason why I love interviewing these veterans so much. They it it, it it's it's history, but it's alive, and you're hearing these. Unbelievable firsthand accounts, and my experience so far has been that most of them remember the details in just incredibly. You know, sometimes I can't even I, go, I get to the grocery store, I can't even remember what's what I went to the grocery store for. And yet these guys, it's just it's so imprinted on their mind and on their memory banks 
that they they really don't forget a lot of those details. They they remember them. That's what makes it so exciting to be an author and to have the opportunity to, to interview these people who lived during these times and experienced these experiences, especially during war. It's just, it really is incredible. And Were there, were there times when you were talking to George or, or Irv when you were really choked up uh, with any of their experiences or accounts? That, and what do you recall as being the most powerful? Um, well, you know, I think when... George was telling me about that time that he got so depressed. And I, I could just envision that. He's 20 years old. He's, he hasn't eaten a, you know, for a long time. He um, was really at the end of his rope. He just, you know, I just um, trying to go one more day, you know, one more day. And I, I had a bout with cancer myself several years ago. And so I know a little bit about circumstances that um, are difficult, and I so identified with what he was saying. And I think, you know, that's part of the reason why reading these stories of the bravery and courage of our young men that are in the military uh, or were in World War II or really any of our wars, it, it's it's so inspiring. You know, you you sort of read what they've been through. And then you think, I am so thankful that they do what they do so that I can do what I do. And, and, and really, that's, that's really what it's all about, is it not to get these stories recorded so that we can pass them on, so that my children, my grandchildren can read them and, and know what has been done for them. Um, and, of course, these 10 were fortunate. They all came back. But there were many, many crews uh, that did not we're not so fortunate. So it's a, it is such an honor and a privilege for me to be able to do these stories and to interview these veterans and, and, and get their history recorded so that we'll have it forever. Yeah, and thank you for that very, very much. It is, I think, one of the best learning experiences in the world uh, for young people today. When we look at our Air Force, uh, we look at our fighting forces, the Air Force now literally pops a vessel if they lose a, any kind of plane in a military action. And here in World War II, uh, the U.S. Army Air Force, which that at time that was our Air Force, lost 22,900 uh, planes. Uh, 22,900 planes in a, in a four-year war. Just incredible when you think the risks these guys going up knew there was a very good chance they would not be returning from that mission. That was that was always in their minds. Mo many of them had a strong belief in God, a love for their country, a love for family, all the all the things that uh, we hold dear today. That's true, but things were different back then. Share with us, if you would, and first of all, to let everybody, just to remind everybody, we're talking with Carol Averitt about her incredible book, Coffin Corner Boys, which is a must-read. I've, I've read this book cover to cover uh, in two nights, and some of you will probably read it in one night. It's that good. But she takes you, she puts you in the boots of 10 crew members of a B-17 who were shot down over France, and each had to find his own way to survive. Uh, an incredible story. And Carol, if I'd like you to share with us George Stark, the man uh, who you did uh, the bulk of your interviewing with, who, who was the captain of this plane, went back. I'd like you to, to describe uh, what you're able to. Uh, you don't want to give away everything, of course, 
but what you would like to share regarding his trip back and what he discovered and the people he met. Okay. Well, of course, when he returned, he went to school and had a career. And, of course, four years later, he wound up in Korea for a couple of years. But as George always said, that's that's a, a story for another day. But he he had his career, raised his family, but it kept tugging at his heart that he wanted to go back to France and try to locate all these people who had helped him. And so he finally was able to touch base again with Maurice. Hadn't seen him in 25 years, but found him. And he asked Maurice if he would meet with him and go with him through these villages and the two of them maybe could locate the people. And so he took his wife, George took his wife, Betty Jo, Joe. They met Maurice and rented a little car, a little Volkswagen, and rode through the countryside and George was able to find nearly every single man, woman, and child. Now, that's remarkable, really, if you even think about that, that had helped him. And he was able to take with him keys, brass keys, that, and it made them, he was, he honored every single person that he met that, that had helped him as an honorary citizen of the city of Orlando. And in the in the years that that went on after that, he went back many more times, became like family with some of these people. Then at one point, he paid for Maurice and his wife because they, they did not have really the, the money to afford the airline tickets to fly over here, paid for them to come to Orlando. And so it you, you know, he George George was always that kind of a person, though. He loved to keep in touch. If you had done something for him, he always remembered that act of kindness. And, of course, these people had saved his life. And he wanted to make sure that they knew that. So he went back four or five times and just became like, like really family with them. He kept up with all his crew, had reunions. You know, you just think about, you know, most of us have the good intentions of keeping up with people, you know, maybe cousins or this or that. And and yet, you know, a year will go by and you realize you haven't touched base with them or two years will go by. But not George. He was very unusual in that kind of way. He always kept up with those people that had been special in his life. And um, just that part of the story is amazing. How How he found them and what happened after he found them and uh, the celebrations that they had, it's, I'll, and I'll, I'll let that be a little bit of a, a secret too for the, for the reader. But it's, is that not incredible to, to go back and do that? And, and then just uh, three years ago, two, two and a half years ago, he was inducted into the um, French Legion of Honor. And that is the highest honor that can be awarded anyone by the French government. And um, that just shows you what they thought of him and what he had, how he had so uh, held the French in such high esteem that it helped him. <laughs> well, Carol, uh, it's a wonderful book. I hope our listeners all get to enjoy uh, Coffin Corner Boys. Could you let them know uh, how to find it? Give them your contact information, website, where they can find the book and the whole deal. We'd appreciate it. All right. Well, uh, it can be ordered on Amazon. And it is available in hard uh, hardback. It is available on Kindle. 
There are also some wonderful CDs. Uh, if you like to listen to a CD when you travel, you can, the entire story, the, the, the gentleman that did the voice, voices for these just did an incredible job of changing his voice and giving wonderful uh, accounts. The, the, he reads the book all the way through, so you'll have the entire book. It also can be found on Barnes & Noble online or in Barnes & Noble bookstores. Um, and I, I think maybe even Costco and Sam's carry it. I'm not sure about that, but I believe that they do. So there are lots of different places, uh, books a million, lots of different places they could find it. Well, Carol Avery, thank you so much for a wonderful book. Appreciate it. Thank you for your time today with 1001 Heroes Podcast. We absolutely loved having you on. It's a great book, and I'm very proud to recommend Thanks, it. Thanks, John. Appreciate it so much. Good to see you. Meet thank you. you. Good talking to you. Mm-hmm. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.